Good morning, friends. Mumble, mumble. Okay. I'll see if I can do a little bit to wake you up this morning. Uh, if you would, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 1. If you have one of the church Bibles that Ryan handed you this morning, it's on page 543. That's where we'll be looking. And uh, Brian did a, a good job of welcoming all the families here this morning uh, who are here for, for Anna and for Lily uh, to be dedicated today. I also want to welcome uh, those of you here who perhaps are checking out Jesus, uh, maybe for the very first time. You're just starting to figure out who this guy is. Perhaps you've been reading the Bible on your own, or perhaps you've been talking with other Christians who are making it sound like this Jesus guy is really, really important, and you're trying to figure out uh, who is Jesus, and is he worth following like these Christians say he is? I asked myself those questions about 17 years ago now. Uh, though I had formerly sworn off Christianity, I found myself regularly drawn to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And as, as an atheist, I didn't think that Jesus was God. Yet I couldn't deny the world-changing authority that he had, that, that thousands of years later people are still talking about him and, and attending church services. I, I just couldn't deny that. And I couldn't deny that he had obviously healed a lot of people, and sometimes in really amazing ways. There, there were testimonies all over the place of that. And I couldn't deny that he had a laser-like focus in accomplishing his mission. The same focus I saw in Christians around me who were inviting me to come and follow Jesus. So, for, after many, many months of not being able to deny those things about him, I stopped denying him. And I started following him. Very cautiously at first, I was looking for anything, anything at all, that might indicate to me that I was believing a lie, that I was being deceived in some way about who this person was. But I never found it. He was everything people said he was, and I've since discovered much more than that. Now, don't get me wrong. It was not at all a fast decision for me, and it was not an uninformed decision. It was, in fact, very important to me that I could answer the questions of who is Jesus and is he worth following? And that's why I'm very excited to preach from Mark's gospel this morning. They, these are the very questions that Mark is trying to address, too. Who is Jesus and is he worth following? Here at Grace Fellowship Church, we just started looking at the gospel of Mark together. That's why we're still in chapter one today. But already we've seen that Mark begins his gospel with an announcement of a new king. Uh, this is good news of a new king who is different and better than the other kings uh, that, that Mark and his readers would be familiar, familiar with. And Mark is, in fact, encouraging us to ask ourselves those very questions we've been talking about already. Who is this king, and is he worth following? So, together this morning, let's see what Mark has to say about that. So let's dive into this text. Uh, we're going to start at verse 14 to give us a little, little context for how we got where we are this morning. This is Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 14. Now after John, that's John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. 
and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going out a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pause there. This is going to be the first point in your outline. This king is worth leaving everything. Here Mark is describing the calling of Jesus' first disciples. He called out to Simon, Andrew, James, and John, saying that they should follow him, and they do. And in fact, Mark tells us that they responded immediately, leaving behind everything they've ever known, including their jobs and families. Now at first glance, it might seem like this was a rash decision on their parts. Okay, it can seem so different, so different than what I myself encountered, where I was very hesitant and slow in deciding to follow Jesus. Well, it seems like these guys just got right up and followed him. So did, did they just have a lot more faith than I did? Well, probably. But uh, I think we learned from other gospel accounts that this isn't actually their first encounter with Jesus. These men had previously encountered Jesus and were very impressed with him. Andrew, even we're told, uh, went and found his brother Simon, and he was so impressed, he said, he said, Simon, we found the Christ. This is, this is the long-awaited Savior of the world. And, and I found him. It's God's chosen king. Come, come. And so these guys had spent some time with them. And so when, when Jesus called these guys to follow him, they joyfully left their jobs and families behind in order to do so. He was worth it. This king was worth leaving everything. Now, Mark doesn't focus on the background and the details of these encounters. You can read about them if you want. You can find them in John chapter 1 and Luke chapter 5. However, Mark cuts right to the chase. He's explaining to his readers, he's emphasizing to his readers, you and me, that this king is indeed worth leaving everything. Mark makes it seem, by, by looking at the lives of these four guys, that it's an obvious choice. And Mark thinks that if you keep reading more, you'll think it's an obvious choice, too. So, what's our application? If you're here this morning, and you haven't yet made a decision to leave behind everything and follow this king, and, and I, when I say everything, I mean, I mean everything. Jesus is calling us to give up all things, your, your former beliefs, your fears, your dreams, your, your well-planned-out future, uh, maybe even your family, all of it. He's calling you to leave all of it and follow him. And so I, I challenge you to do what Mark is calling us to do. Begin following him. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with others who love Jesus. And the very fact you're here this morning, Grace Fellowship says you're in good company to find people like that. And then ask yourselves the questions. Who is this king? And is he worth and listen, friends, don't be hasty in your answers to these questions. Because if you are really willing to leave everything behind, he may call you to do that. This is risky business here. For these four men, they would never again go back to fishing. Jesus had called them to be fishers of men from now on. He was, this king was asking them to preach an offensive, unpopular message and eventually to die for it. So this is a big decision, one we should not take lightly. And Mark, therefore, invites us to keep reading in order to get to know this king better so we can answer that question better. So let's do that. Okay, this, this king is worth leaving, and Mark's going to tell us in this next section, because he's the Holy One of God. 
Okay, let's read, pick up again in verse 21 through 28. And they, that's Jesus and his, his four friends here, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astounded, astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. In these verses here, Mark is emphasizing the absolute authority of Jesus. And he does so in two ways. The first way is in his teaching. Jesus showed up on the Sabbath in the synagogue, which is a lot like saying he showed up to church on Sunday. And he was invited to teach. And as he did, everyone was amazed. Why? Because it says he taught as one who had authority. And then a few verses later, they, they, they exclaim, what is this? A new teaching with authority. It doesn't seem that this Jewish congregation knew quite what they were dealing with here, but they recognized authority when they saw it. So much so that they called it a new teaching. It was so vastly different than what they were used to. It was like new teaching. And they even compared it to the scribes. Okay, these were the guys who did the regular teaching in the synagogue. The scribes knew the Jewish Old Testament. They knew who God was, and they taught it week after week after week. They were the normal preachers. Yet Jesus was different. He had a shocking degree of authority. It's perhaps the difference, this is a college town, right? It's perhaps the difference between having, let's say, a grad student teach your uh, elementary physics class and having Albert Einstein come and teach you quantum mechanics. Okay, that's entirely different kinds of things, except it's even more than that, okay? Because Einstein discovered quantum mechanics, but Jesus didn't just, like, discover and learn to understand the scriptures. He wrote the scriptures, okay? And in a very real sense, the Bible tells us that he is the scriptures. He's, he's the word incarnate with flesh on. So this Jewish audience likely didn't understand why Jesus had this authority, but they knew that he did. So that's the first way. That's his teaching. He gives him authority. But there's a second way that Mark calls us to consider Jesus' authority. Jesus commanded the unclean spirit, and it obeyed him. Now, most of us here haven't had a lot of experience with unclean spirits, okay? So if there's one thing you need to know about unclean spirits this morning, it's this. They have no interest whatsoever in what you think they should do. Okay, they are not interested in obeying you. If, if you could just like kind of tell these unclean spirits to go away on your own, they'd be no more of a nuisance than a housefly, right? They just kind of float all about and be annoying. But if they land on you or near you, you just swat them, and they're gone. You know, and problem solved. But that's not what these unclean spirits are like. These unclean spirits, also known as demons, are powerful beings. They're fallen angels. They had stood ablaze in the presence of God, but now serve Satan, the prince of demons. 
and they are not intimidated at all by your authority. They don't care what your job title is. They don't care how big your bank account is. They don't even care how, what, to what degree you have personal piety. These were warriors whose goal was and is to cause as much damage to God's people as possible. These are like the demonic Navy SEALs, okay? And on our own, we can't stop them. And this was a big problem. Many people in Jesus' day were horribly afflicted by demons. And we see one right here as he walks into the middle of this Jewish worship service. But note what happens as soon as he does. He walks in, he sees Jesus, and he says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Whoa. Okay, this demon, or perhaps demons, plural, he refers to himself both ways here, are very intimidated by Jesus. And it's not because, just because Jesus could simply banish them or, or, or swat at them with a, with, a, uh, with a fly swatter, but they knew that he had the authority to destroy them. So remember Albert Einstein teaching, teaching your physics class? From the point of view of this demon, Albert Einstein's up there teaching, and he's decked out like Rambo. Okay, he's got like grenades strapped on him here. He's got an AK-47 pointed at their heads. They're terrified. They're utterly terrified. So when Jesus tells these demons to shut up and leave, they listen. No hesitation. This is a lot better than being destroyed. And everyone is amazed. What kind of authority is this? They ask. So, how are we to interpret Mark's emphasis on Jesus' authority in his teaching and in his casting out of demons. The answer Mark gives us comes from a most unexpected place. Notice what the demons said before they were banished. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And there it is, friends. Mark has been inviting us to ask the question, who is this king? And here's our answer from the mouth of a demon. Who is this king? He's the Holy One of God. Now, lest we be too quick to believe the testimony of your average demon, let me point out two quick reasons why I think we should actually listen to the demon in this case. First, this demon wasn't in a state of trying to deceive. Okay? It was in a place of tremendous fear. It thought it was about to be utterly destroyed, and it was explaining why it was rightfully terrified. Okay? He wasn't trying to trick anybody. He was just terrified. He's like, oh my gosh, this is the Holy One of God! So that's one reason. I don't think he's trying to trick us here. The second reason, even more significantly, I think, is that we're told more about this demon's knowledge just a few verses later. Okay, we're going we're gonna to get to this in a moment, but jump down with me for just a second to verse 34. Verse 34 says, And he, Jesus, healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. If Jesus were not really the Holy One of God, and this demon were actually trying to deceive us in some way, Mark had every opportunity right here to properly interpret for us and to explain, well, okay, he said this, but here's what's actually going on. But instead, Mark emphasizes the exact opposite. He says the reason the demons couldn't speak isn't because they were lying. It's because they knew who Jesus was. Who is this king? He's the Holy One of God. 
Mark is making it clear here that Jesus is God's special one, one who is holy, set apart, different from all others. That is why Jesus communicates authority in his teaching. And that is why Jesus commands authority in casting out the demons. It is because he is the Holy One of God. Okay, so what does that mean for us? How do we apply this? I'll give you two ways. First, if this king really is the Holy One of God, and if he is indeed challenging us to follow him, then we are to seek to be holy like him. So let me ask you this question. Are you pursuing a holy life? Have you left behind your former ways, or are you trying to follow Jesus while still keeping one foot back in the realm of the unclean demons? Have you, for example, sought out sexual holiness by putting away pornography and temptations to lust? Have you sought out financial holiness by dealing honestly with your employer when reporting time worked and labor accomplished and with the government when paying your taxes? Have you sought out financial holiness in giving generously to those who cannot give back? Have you sought out relational holiness by putting away jealousy, gossip, slander, and lying? Have you sought to love those who are hard to love and to serve those who aren't serving you? I've been learning this one myself recently, thanks to the uh, wise counsel of my godly wife and some other brothers who know me very well. I've been recently realizing that my tendency is to gravitate towards those who uh, are more responsive while overlooking or ignoring those who are not. So for example, a few weeks ago, a few weekends ago, I spent time uh, visiting uh, Ali's brother and his family, and so I got a lot of time with my nieces, who I absolutely delighted. Uh, one of them one of them's 10, one of them was six or seven, and they were just my delight. I spent as much time with them the whole visit as possible. They were so much fun, and, and they were very, they responded to me with thankfulness and with sweetness and with joy, and it was just such a fun time for me. I, I had no problem loving them. Contrast that with, with a boy in our neighborhood who who could be identified as, as rude, bossy, um, perhaps more prone to disrespect. And I don't seek out ways to spend time with him. I don't try to spend a whole weekend with him. I don't particularly want to invite him over to my house. Yet, here are Jesus' words against me from the end of Matthew 5. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus looks at me and says, Yes, yeah, showing love towards those who love you back is totally understandable, even normal, but it is not holy. If you want to follow me, Tom, Jesus says to me, I have called you to something more. I have called you to relational holiness. So friends, I know firsthand how hard these calls to holiness are. 
But these are things that Jesus, the Holy One of God, has clearly communicated and commanded to his followers. And if, and look at it this way, if even the unclean spirits obey Jesus, how much more should the king's people? Here's a second application. Consider this text. In this text, the spirit of the man who entered the temple service was unclean, right? The spirit of the man who taught in the temple service was holy, fully clean. Now, a little bit of background in Old Testament here, in case you're not familiar. In the Old Testament, if something holy comes in contact or mixes in with something unclean, what happens to them? They both become unclean. Now they're both yucky. That's not what happens here. In this instance, when the holy and the unclean meet, the holy makes the unclean clean. So, here's the application. If you're sitting here right now, and you're feeling a little weighted down by my previous application, saying, I don't, I don't know if I can bear this. I don't, I'm not holy. And I try. I'm trying to be holy in these various ways, and I feel like I'm failing again and again. Then I have good news. Jesus has come to make you holy. That is, he, pers- he calls you to pursue holiness, but he alone can make you holy. So as you seek out sexual holiness, internet filters may serve you greatly. I have one in my own home to protect me and my family. But only the Holy One of God can change our unclean hearts so that we no longer even desire pornography. As you seek out financial holiness, increasing your giving in generosity will do you much good, but only the Holy One of God can change your unclean hearts so that you become a joyful giver. And and people like me that, that struggle with relational holiness... Okay, inviting rude neighborhood kids over to dinner to eat with my family is a good idea. That will be holy. But only the Holy One of God can change my unclean heart such that I am actually filled with compassion and love for that kid who so desperately needs Jesus. Let him make you holy, friends. Don't try to pursue holiness on your own. You won't be able to. Instead, Leave everything and follow the Holy One of God. Now we might rightfully wonder at this point, before we move on, if this king is so holy, he's, he's, he's the special one, he's God's chosen one, and he's a king worthy of all authority and, and power, would he not seek to remain distant, away in his castle, in, in his throne room? What right would we have to come in what would he and he and I have to do with each other? And, and that would be a good question to ask. Mark addresses that question next. Our next section. Let's read it, starting at verse 29. And immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, Fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. 
and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Friends, though we might think that a king with absolute authority might shun the weak and banish the ill, this one reaches out, takes an old lady by the hand, and draws her out of bed. Jesus shows us here that his holiness and his authority are not at odds with his compassion. Rather, he uses his authority to banish the fever, just as he used it to banish the unclean spirit. And in fact, the text here says that the the fever left Simon's mother-in-law, just like Simon left his nets a few days earlier. But no, the the king's work is not even done here. Like, when you couple the fame of uh, Jesus, that Jesus was getting from casting out the demon with the fame he was now receiving by, by healing the sick, Jesus was becoming a very popular man. And the fame of Jesus led countless needy people here. It says the whole city was gathered together at the door. They all came straight to Simon and Andrew's house. And once again, though lesser monarchs would have sent them away or perhaps demanded uh, homage or service at that particular moment, he instead spent his evening healing again and again while exercising his God-given authority to cast out Satan's evil minions. Friends, this is not a distant, unloving king. This king is compassionate healer. So how do we apply that? What does that mean for us? As followers of the Holy One of God, let's be like him. Let's be uh, God's agent of healing in the lives of those around us. So, some of you who are visiting or new may not know this, but those who have been around here will know this well. There are a number of people here in our church who are very, very sick. Sometimes it's obvious who's really sick because of how they carry themselves. Sometimes it's not at all obvious that they're sick because of how they carry themselves. But therein lies our application. Let it never be said that at Grace Fellowship Church, anyone has to carry himself or herself, but rather we carry one another's burdens. So here's our Lord's challenge. Do you know who the sick and needy are here in our church? What are you doing to carry their burdens for them? Now, take note, this is not someone else's job. This is not the job of a church care committee. It's not even the job of just their family or their growth group or whatever. This is my job, and this is your job. So families, why not find out who these people are and welcome their children into your home to spend extended time with your family every couple weeks so that our sicker members can get some extended time with their Savior. That is so hard to get otherwise. Or, even more rare than that, maybe that they can actually go on a date with their spouse. Singles, why not find out who these sick members are and come over once a week and mow their lawn or fold their laundry or cook them a meal or just spend time with them talking. Now, I I know that that every one of us is tempted to say, well, I'm really busy. But friends, I'm telling you, 
that if you're following Jesus and you think you're too busy to care for the sick members around us, you're doing something wrong. Something's broken. And I assure you that as you seek to follow Jesus by compassionately loving others as he did, you will promote healing not only for our sick members, but for your own soul as well. You will become more like the Holy One that you were following. Now before we move on to our final points, let me once again highlight verse 34. We looked at this briefly before. We're told that Jesus would not permit the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew him. And we might wonder, why is that a problem? What's going on here? I mean, if if the demons were spreading lies and, and, and yelling, this man is a fraud, don't believe him, then, yeah, Jesus would rightly say, be silent and get out of here. But, but Mark tells us plainly that it's because they knew him that they weren't permitted to speak. How are we to understand that? There are various theories about why Jesus didn't allow certain people to speak, but I think the simplest solution is just a few verses later. Let's look at our last section. Jesus is on a mission to save the world. Verses 35-39. In rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Even after a long night of healing and casting out demons, Jesus nonetheless rose very early in the morning, in the dark, and went off to pray. Why did he do that? Why, why not just pray where he was? I mean, Jesus is the one who said, like, when you pray, just go into a room by yourself, close the door, and pray, and you'll be heard. The answer as to why is given by Simon. When Simon finds him, he says, everyone is looking for you. That is, the crowds had returned. Jesus stayed up all night healing, healing and casting out demons, and now there's another crowd. Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. So if he had stayed at Simon's place, instead of going off to a desolate place to pray, there'd be another horde of people wanting to see him, looking to be healed. But Jesus doesn't go back. Instead, he goes anywhere else. He says, they were to go on to the next towns. But I thought Jesus was a compassionate healer and there's sick people. Why? Why would he say, there's people who need me there? I'm going over here. Why? Verse 38 tells us, it says that it was so he could preach there also, these other towns, for that is why he came out. What did Jesus mean by that? Remember the first words we read from the scriptures this morning, back in verses 14 and 15? This is, this is the first words of Jesus that Mark tells us about. Verses 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this king is indeed a compassionate healer and demon caster outer. Okay? But that's not why he came. He came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. His first words, I'm on a mission. 
I'm on a mission for God. I'm going to preach the good news. And while he's clearly eager to hear, I mean, I'm sorry, heal the multitudes and cast out the demons, his first and foremost goal is to fulfill what God has called him to do. That's why he came out. That is also why the demons couldn't speak. It's not that they were saying false things. It's the true things that were getting in the way of the mission. Many people were drawn to him because he could heal and cast out demons, which is wonderful. But as hard as it might have been for these crowds to understand this, healing and demon removal are not nearly as wonderful or or critical for the salvation of men's souls. That's why Jesus had to keep moving. That's why he couldn't stay surrounded by crowds. That's why the demons couldn't make him even more famous than he already was. Jesus' mission was nothing short of saving the world. And he was doing that through preaching the message that we, unclean, broken sinners, could turn to God and be healed. Otherwise, our uncleanness would forever keep us from being in God's presence, receiving God's blessing, and experiencing God's love. Our uncleanness would instead ultimately cause us to cry out just like the the unclean spirit, knowing that God had complete authority not only to banish us from his presence, but to completely destroy us forever. Yet if we followed Jesus, the Holy One of God, we would be compassionately healed. And that's because Jesus wouldn't require us to be holy. He would become holy for us. He lived a perfect life and then was destroyed on our behalf so that his brokenness would result in our healing. And his holiness would be counted as our holiness and his Father would be called our Father. That's the message Jesus came to preach. And that's the life Jesus came to give. This is his mission. A mission to save the world. So what does this mean for you and I? It means we should repent and believe the gospel. And not just once, but daily. Our holy, compassionate king died for us. And that's where our power, our motivation, our love, our joy come from. It means that we should use that power, motivation, and joy to invite others to follow Jesus as well. In doing so, we continue in the footsteps of our King. We continue his world-saving mission. So, here's a question. Why not invite a friend or neighbor or or co-worker to come meet him next week? Today's sermon is called, Who is this King? Part 1. Part 2 is next week. Invite someone to come and meet this Jesus. Meet this king who died for them. Friends, we've seen that this king is the Holy One of God and a compassionate healer on a mission to save the world. So let's go back to Mark's question. Who is this king? And is he worth following? How will you answer him? Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that you are the king. You have all authority. You are the holy one of God. And God, we don't have much authority at all. We can't 
handle unclean spirits. We can't handle even proper teaching, it seems, in so many, so many ways. We don't know how to think about the world. We confess, God, that we need healing, that we are not holy. God, we are very small, but you are very great, and you died for us. God, that's backwards. It doesn't make sense, but we are so grateful for it. God, would you reinvigorate us in our pursuit of you? Help us to never stop following you. And God, I pray for anybody in this room who has not chosen to follow you yet, that they would ask themselves these questions and that you yourself would give them their answers. Jesus, we pray this for the sake of your name. Amen.